0: We're back to the Gospel of John. Um, I know it feels like we started the Gospel of John sometime in mid-2012, but it hasn't been that long. Um, we're already on the 20th sermon, and we're up to, we're in the, almost, we're in like the first third of chapter 6. Um, like chapter 6 and 7 of John, chapter 5, they're really long. There's about, you know, 80 verses. So, you know, just, we're shooting to finish John 6 in 2019, but no promises, it's a long chapter, and one thing we've committed to not do, uh, we won't hurry. There's just really good stuff here. What, you know, you don't, you don't want to hurry, so that's what we're not going to do. Um, but Let's take a look here. This is a, this is a really uh, familiar passage, Jesus walking on the water. Uh, we could go across the courtyard, and we could ask the kindergartners and the first graders, um, what is one of your favorite stories about Jesus? And they may only know a few, but they're going to know Jesus walking on the water. They're going to say, Jesus walked on the water. They might even know some of the details about it. So this, we've, a lot of us have known this story for decades. It's very familiar. Uh, but this story does fit in a larger context over what we've been talking about the last several weeks, or what we're going to talk about the next several weeks. This story does fit in this, in this uh, larger context. So we need to understand a lot about the setting. We need to understand uh, why this short little passage, six verses today, is in the middle of this really long chapter, what it has to do with everything that Jesus has been doing and everything that he will uh, continue to do. Uh, Yeah, we we don't want to overlook anything. So let's talk just a little bit about it. We're going to start with these first couple verses here. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Okay, this leaves us with a few questions we can talk about as we understand the setting in the background here okay when evening came well that that gives us a okay what happened before the evening right what happened earlier that day That's the first question we're going to take a look at second question right here his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat and started across the sea to capernaum why why are they headed to the boat where are they going why were they going what was the point of this trip third question it was now dark and jesus had not yet come to them why wasn't jesus with them Right, if we can answer these three questions, it's going to really help us as we look at the rest of the passage and as an old familiar story it becomes very fresh for us. Okay? So when evening came, what happened earlier that day? If you remember from a couple of weeks ago, Jesus feeds the 5,000. If we went back to the same kids right across the courtyard there, kindergarten, first grade, tell me another story that you know Jesus did. They're going to say, we know he fed a bunch of people once with loaves and fish, 5,000. They're going to know that really familiar passage. So we know what happened earlier that day. Jesus feeds the 5,000 people. We talked about it two weeks ago. Jesus then took the loaves, and just a few verses previous to this, John 6, 11, He took the loaves, and when he'd given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Okay? John performs, or excuse me, Jesus performs seven signs that John records. We've talked about some of these. We've seen this chart before. Let's review them again. First one that we talked about very early on, Jesus turns water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, way back in chapter 2. Second one, Jesus heals the nobleman's son from a distance. This also happened in the region of Galilee, which is where we are in today's passage. Happened in John chapter 4. Jesus heals the lame man by the pool. Talked about this just a few weeks ago. This happened back in Jerusalem, the invalid man who was there, been there 30-something years. Jesus feeds the 5,000 from the first part of chapter 6. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The sign we're on today is Jesus is going to walk on the Sea of Galilee. Two more that we're going to get to, and I'm not going to make any promises about when we're going to get to them. But uh, chapter 9, Jesus brings sight to a man born blind. And finally, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. Seven signs. We're looking at number 5. A lot of these happened in Galilee. Okay, So, we know what happened earlier that day. They said, when evening came, they did this. What happened earlier? The feeding of the 5,000. What about those two other questions? Okay? His disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Why? Why were they headed to the boat? Why were they headed to Capernaum? Second question, it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Why wasn't Jesus with them? Okay? We can look at these six verses in John, and we can come up empty. There's not really enough information in John's account to know the answers. John tells us that Jesus, John tells us about these things, uh, but we we don't know from right here a lot of hows and the whys. But we have something in our favor, okay? We can get help from the other Gospels. Like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, all four Gospel accounts, talk, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all talk about the feeding of the 5,000, Okay? We know that Matthew and John were there. They were eyewitnesses, right? They were disciples of Jesus. They were two of the twelve. They went with him. They traveled with him. Uh, Yeah, they were firsthand eyewitnesses. Mark, um, it's quite possible Mark was around for some of Jesus' ministry. uh, but He would have been very young, but Mark got a lot of his information from Peter, and Luke got a lot of his information because he was an excellent researcher. But all four gospel accounts include the feeding of the 5,000. Matthew, Mark, and John all describe the sign that we're going to talk about today, Jesus walking on the water later on that evening, okay? So we can get help. These other accounts, we can we can look at Matthew, we can look at Mark, and they're going to contribute to a fuller picture of the events, not only of this evening, when evening came, and then everything that happened after that, but even in what's happening in the days and the weeks leading up to this event. We can learn a lot by looking at Matthew and Mark, Okay. One of the principles that we want to look at, we don't quite know why from in by looking just at these six verses in John, the answers to those last two questions, and we never want to assume. We never want to think, well, oh, it must mean it must mean this or it must mean this, right? Um, text without context is too often just pretext. That's not what we want to do. We want to look. Okay, if there's other information we can look at, if we can let Scripture explain Scripture, let's do that, okay? That's what we're going to do, just for a couple of minutes here, all right? Let's take a look at what we read here in John's gospel, okay, as we just read a couple of minutes ago. When evening came, from today's passage, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them, okay? When evening came, this was, as we just saw, immediately following the feeding of 5,000. Immediately following this, two things happened in John's gospel. We read about them two weeks ago. Right after he feeds the 5,000, there's one little verse, Verse fifteen, right before today's scripture reading, the people wanted to take Jesus and crown him king, like forcefully take him and make him king. The second thing they want, and the second thing that happened is Jesus refused that, and he withdrew again. The word "again" is in there. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Okay, these are these are two little bitty things that happened right after the feeding of the five thousand, and right before uh, the sign that we're going to talk about today. Very important little things, and we'll get to them later. All right? There are other things we can learn from Matthew and Mark, particularly from Matthew's gospel. Immediately, this is immediately following the feeding of the 5,000. This is from Matthew chapter 14. He, meaning Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. From Mark's gospel, we read, immediately... He, meaning Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Okay? So we already know when evening came, what happened earlier that day? The feeding of the 5,000. His disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Why? Why'd they do that? Was it, was it their decision? No. Jesus told them. We read in Matthew, we read in Mark. Jesus told them, get in the boat, and go across the sea without me. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Why wasn't Jesus with them? He stayed on the mountainside to pray, okay? We understand the facts. We understand all all these details. We know why these things are happening. Now we have a little bit fuller account of the events of that evening, okay? Okay? The other gospel accounts can help us understand that, about what happened the evening when Jesus walked on the water. Can they tell us anything about the events leading up to this sign, days prior to it? They can, and it's really important what they can teach us. All right? This is what we read from John's gospel. This was from a couple of weeks back, John chapter 5. Jesus is teaching, and he says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Talking about John the Baptist. He was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. That word was is very important. What's happened here is that John the Baptist has died. Right before we get to today's passage, right before we get to this section where Jesus tries to go be alone. And 5,000 men plus women and kids show up hungry. So he doesn't get his solitude. He has to feed them. Then he wants to send them away and get some more solitude. One important thing here is the death of his friend, his relative, John the Baptist. A little bit of backstory: John the Baptist uh, preached about the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom of God, and told people that they should repent from their sins. He took repentance very seriously. He was baptizing people for repentance of their sins in the Jordan River. We read about him in the first chapter of John. He's the one who, um, yeah, he was the prophet that went before Jesus. He's the one that said he wasn't even worthy to to loosen Jesus's sandals, uh, you know, the camel's, uh, camel's skin clothes and the, the, ate the locusts and the wild honey. And, you know, John the Baptist, the, the wild one. Well, King Herod, who was uh, king of the Jews at the time, he was having an affair, uh, with his brother's wife. Um, named Herodias. His brother was named Philip. Philip's wife was named Herodias, and Herod decided that he wanted to take his brother's wife for himself. Being king, he could do that kind of thing. So he was doing it. John was calling him out. John was constantly calling King Herod to repent very publicly, very boldly. You can imagine the king was probably not happy about this. Um, King Herod was a little bit entertained by John. He He would allow John to do some of these things, but he did imprison John. The person who really didn't like it was Herodias, King Herod's Sister-in-law, King Herod's brother Philip's wife, the woman he was having the affair with. She hated John. She wanted John dead. She was looking for any opportunity she could. And then the king held a feast. A lot of you know this story. Uh, Herodias, the uh, sister-in-law he's having the affair with, her daughter performs at the feast for King Herod. King Herod says, "'That was wonderful. "'What can I give you as payment "'for performing at, at this great feast? "'I'll give you anything up to the half of my kingdom.'" Mother and daughter had worked this out ahead of time. The daughter says, I would like the head of John the Baptist on a big plate. If you could bring that to me, that'd be great. King Herod's there. He's already said, I'll do it. He's already said, I'll give you whatever you want up to the half of my kingdom. So he can't back down now. So, Matthew chapter 14, we read, He, meaning King Herod, he sent, and he had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother, just like they had planned. And his disciples, meaning John's disciples, the people that that traveled with John and, and helped John in his ministry, his disciples came and they took the body and they buried it. And then they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. And from two weeks ago, you remember the rest of the story. Jesus says, Why don't you guys feed them? And then they look and they find a boy who brought the loaves and the fish. From there, Jesus performs the sign of the feeding of the 5,000. We get the sense that this happened maybe the same day that Jesus hears about John the Baptist. He goes... The people are there. I don't think it took several days in between. I think it was the same day because the people are there and they've got no food. So it seems like it must have happened pretty quick because the people just heard about Jesus and they ran right away without even packing up a lunch or planning ahead or anything like that. So here's Jesus grieving, wants to be alone, some solitude, some time to, to pray, to reflect. But here are hungry people death of John the Baptist is one of them. The second one is that Jesus refuses to be the type of leader the people want. We read about it, uh, the very last, verse 15 right there in chapter 6 from a couple of weeks ago. Jesus, he's been performing all these public signs and miracles. Water into wine. That's an amazing miracle. There's almost no downside to that. Jesus is turning water into wine. That scores points with everybody. Everybody likes that miracle. Nobody feels judged. Nobody feels imposed upon. Nobody feels like, wow, he did a miracle, but I think he's talking about me. No, that's fun for everybody, right? 100% satisfaction on the water into wine. He heals the nobleman's uh, son from a distance, right? Jesus is still in Cana. Nobleman's son's in Capernaum. He's like, he's healed. And then when the nobleman gets back, he finds out, yep, same hour he said it. That's when he was healed. Slowly, Jesus is doing fewer and fewer signs, and his signs are a bit more pointed, and he's starting to teach a bit, and people's opinions are beginning to change about him. As we continue, we're really going to see this. The slide that I threw up about the signs, we're at sign number five, it's like three chapters until we get to sign number six. In, in crossway terms, three chapters is like eight months. So it's, it's a long time until we see Jesus do one of those other signs. And he doesn't even do the last one until chapter 11. So the signs are fewer, but the tough teaching comes a lot more frequently. And people don't like that. Tons of people like what Jesus can do. Not many people like what Jesus has to say at this point. He refuses to be the type of leader that the people want. They want to crown him king. He refuses, and he doesn't even... I mean, it's not even like, no, I can't do that. He's like, no, go now. And they all leave him, right? Jesus, he refuses that attempt to be made their king. He has no interest in being a material savior who's going to ease their situation. He has no interest in getting them out of their, um, their problems with the Roman government or even with the corrupt King Herod or their neighbors who bother. He they, they has no interest in any of that. Jesus' plan is to be their redeemer. Set them free from their sin, not from their circumstances. So hearing of the death of John the Baptist and knowing this difficult path that awaits him. After today, it's kind of a turning point. Everybody's coming to Jesus, coming to Jesus. And later on in chapter 6, everybody's leaving Jesus, leaving Jesus. It's kind of a turning point. Jesus knows it's coming. He's sovereign. He knows everything that's going to happen before it happens. Hearing of the death of John the Baptist and knowing the difficult path that awaits him, Jesus seeks solitude in the mountains to pray. He dismissed the crowd that has just been fed, and he sends his disciples ahead by boat back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Okay? With that, with that uh, understood, got that under our belts, now we can talk about the actual sign itself, okay? the meat of today's passage. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, "It is I. Do not be afraid." Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let's break this down just a little bit. In the boat, the disciples they were facing strong winds. At this point, the sails are no good. The sails is, is pointless. Let's take the sails down. Let's start rowing. Right. So they're rowing. They're three or four miles out, at about halfway to their destination. At this point, at this. Place in the Sea of Galilee. It's about seven, eight miles from one side to the other. So they're about halfway, right? They're not just barely off the shore. They're they're pretty far. Okay. If you made it this far, you might as well keep going. Uh, Mark's account, Mark chapter six verse forty. He adds that Jesus could see them. Jesus was on the mountain praying, and he could look down. And he could see them struggling against in the wind, against the wind and the waves. It was middle of the night, but we know that the time for Passover was at hand. As we read before the feeding of the 5,000. So there would have been almost a full moon, right? We're getting pretty close to the full moon of Passover. Jesus can probably look down and see them from the mountain. Personal story. Uh, when we lived in China all those years, we looked forward, usually once a year, we would have meetings in Thailand. Uh, it was a nice break. Nice to, nice to get away, nice to reconnect with colleagues, learn some things, share some things. And then uh, a lot of you have been to where we lived. Um, it was really hard to get to where we lived, our little town. Uh, at, its, at its worst, the bus took about uh, six hours, sometimes six and a half if it was raining. This was before they finished the freeway all the way. So you never knew what was going to happen. You never knew if there was going to be an accident ahead of you and you are going to be stuck. So when we were out, we stayed out. We're like, all right. We're already in Thailand. Before we go home, let's just take four or five days of vacation. And there was this really nice place called Dolphin Bay. If you're ever in Thailand, go to Dolphin Bay. But um, it's nice. It's quiet. It's a couple hours from Bangkok. And the uh, there's no Starbucks, no McDonald's, no no chains of any kind. Uh, just little small hotels right on the beach. Um, the place we always went had a nice pool. Turns out a lot of families, a lot of our coworkers, would also take their vacations there. So it was kind of fun. It was like a like a vacation with friends. Usually not even unplanned. We just oh I didn't know you guys were coming. Oh you guys are here too. Great. So we'd all hang out and you know watch each other's kids and just go go have a good time. I don't remember if JT was born yet or not. He's six now. So this was maybe right before he was born or right after he was born. I don't remember if if he was born he was little. And then the girls, you know, they're, they're 11 and 9 now, so they would have been really young too. So one day they were all napping in the room, but I didn't really want to nap. Like, i kind of want to do something fun. I don't know why. But I thought, I'm going to get out and do something. So we're here at the beach. It's, it's really, it's not a busy thing at all. It's just a little strip of beach, and there's not, the waves aren't even that big. There's, it's kind of a bay. It's really quiet. But right, I, it was over a mile, is Monkey Island. You know why they called it Monkey Island? It had a lot of monkeys on it. Um, so there was a big boat that would take all the tourists to Monkey Island. Okay? And you could go and you could feed the monkeys. Why anybody would pay to do that, I don't know. Because they came like crazy. These monkeys were, to- they were totally dependent on the tourists and the food that the tourists brought. So no way do I want any piece of that. But on the beach, there was a place that you could rent kayaks by the hour. Now, you're probably looking at me thinking, I'll bet Bo is really good at kayaking. You would be wrong. I had never done it before. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do while my whole family's napping? I'm going to rent a kayak, and I'm going to go out to Monkey Island. I don't know why I did that. So I get the kayak, and I go, and I'm paddling, and I'm facing strong winds. I, I think it's a mile, but it feels like five. I've never been in a kayak this was my first time, and I'm by myself. And I've been in a canoe, and I'm like, that's easy. Kayak's not easy. I'm down. My sunburned. I'm sore. My legs are sore. My stomach's sore. My arms are sore. There's like a Portuguese man o' war jellyfish that goes right under the boat. I'm like, I think this might be how I end. This might be it for me. I'm pretty sure my wife knows that I love her. Um, but I think this really might be it. So I'm fighting, and just the wind is, I mean, it takes me an hour at least I'm just pushing as hard as I can get to get to this island. It just becomes like a personal test of will. And so I make it, and then I'm like, well, now what am I going to do? So I'm getting there close to the island, and then I'm like, the monkeys don't see me yet. But then pretty soon the monkeys heard me, and they came running. I'm just thinking, "When's was my last rabies booster? Like, I think I'm good. And then I had a bottle of water, and the monkey was looking at me, and I'm like, do you want the water, monkey? So he takes the water, and he drinks it, and then he wants to hand it back to me. I'm like, it's okay, monkey, keep it. So... I was kind of scared of the monkeys a little bit, but I was really tired from the ride over. And I spent about three minutes on Monkey Island, which is really about two minutes longer than you need to spend. I'm like, I'm just going back. I don't care how tired I am. I don't care what happens to me. I'm definitely not dying on this island with these monkeys. So I get back, but the wind's at my back. It takes like 10 minutes to get back. I mean, somebody could have skied behind me. I mean, I'm just flying back because the wind's behind me. It's so easy. I make it back and then Happy that I made it back, and I, I go up on the beach and put the kayak back. And one of my coworkers, this guy I got to know pretty well, he goes, uh, "Yeah, I saw you go." He goes, "I just thought, man, Bo must be really good at kayaking." And then after like ten minutes, I'm like, "No, Bo doesn't know how to kayak." <laughs> yeah, but I was watching to make sure you stayed upright, and like, but, so I'm like, well, "Okay, thanks, you know, for at least keeping an eye on me." So this story. Of the disciples facing the strong winds and Jesus on the mountain watching them, it kind of hits home. It's Jesus is watching them just really struggle against this wind that they you can't even use the sails anymore. They're just rowing and they're stuck. They're rowing and rowing, but the wind is just blowing them. And Jesus is just watching them from the side of the mountain by the light of the full moon. But this sign of Jesus, it's supernatural, Okay. Just as in the feeding of the 5,000, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. A lot of people said feeding of the 5,000 is a good story, but the meaning behind the story is that when this little boy said he would share his lunch, everybody else said they would share their lunch too, and that way there was plenty of food for everybody. Not supernatural, it's just inspirational. We talked about, no, that's totally wrong. That's not how it is. We have to take it at its face value. Same thing here. A lot of people would say, well, Jesus was just walking along the shore, right? He didn't really go out and walk on the water to them. Let me tell you, people, um, when I was fighting for my life, my friend Aaron was watching me from the shore. I had no idea he was there, and it was broad daylight. So these disciples, they're not rowing three or four miles from shore, fighting against the wind and the waves, and they see Jesus on the shore. No way. Jesus walks out to them. Verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. They were frightened at the sight of a person walking on the top of the water surface. They thought it was a ghost, we read in Mark 6 49. If you have issues with the supernatural, miraculous power and authority that Jesus displays in signs like feeding of the 5,000 and walking on the water, we probably should have a conversation before we get to raising Lazarus from the dead. And he himself being resurrected. Because it, it keeps leveling up what he's doing. Completely supernatural. Jesus identifies himself and then he calms their fears. He says to them, it's I. It is I. Do not be afraid. He doesn't do those backwards. He doesn't tell them not to be afraid and then identify themselves. He says, hey, it's Jesus. Don't be afraid nowhere in the three accounts this is important that we look at this nowhere in these three accounts matthew mark or john we don't find it anywhere that the disciples were afraid of the wind and the waves this is not that passage this is not jesus sleeping in the boat when in mark and luke it talks about a violent storm came up suddenly and they were they even said the water was coming up in the boat and they yelled at jesus master teacher don't you care that we're perishing And Jesus stands up and just rebukes the winds and the waves and then they're calm. This isn't that. We get no sense from this story whatsoever. These are fishermen who go here all the time. They know, yeah, the wind's sometimes strong. It was hitting against the boat. We don't read that it was coming up in the boat. They were struggling, but we don't read that they were afraid. We only read that they were afraid when they saw what they thought was a ghost walking on the water, coming towards them. I probably would be a little bit afraid of that myself. There's one detail that Matthew includes, but John and Mark don't. A familiar part of the story in case you were looking for it in john it's in matthew so when jesus identifies himself peter calls out lord if it's you command me to come to you on the water and jesus said come so peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came to jesus a lot of you know what happens next but when he saw the wind peter was afraid and beginning to sink he cried out lord save me and jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying to him oh you of little faith why did you doubt And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Okay? But Jesus, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that because that's one of these days when we do Matthew, we'll talk about that. There's a lot of places we could go. But Jesus makes it to the boat. They were struggling so bad that Jesus is on the mountain. They're already three or four miles out there. And Jesus can, like, walk on the water at a walking pace and catch up to them. That's how slowly they're making it across. But when Jesus finally gets there, we hear from the three writers what happens. John tells us, then they were glad, verse 21, they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. This seems like a miraculous part of this sign. It's almost like the language is telling us, as soon as Jesus gets into the boat, it's like they kind of just warp speed to where they were headed. Immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. It makes it the rest of the three or four miles across as soon as Jesus gets in there with them. From Mark's account, we read that when Jesus got in the boat with them, the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Mark says, they didn't understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. After they saw the sign of the, the loaves and the fish they feeding the 5,000, they still weren't totally sure what to make of it. But after this sign, later that evening middle of the night they were utterly astounded at who jesus is and at the authority that jesus has and matthew i like his and when they meaning jesus and peter got into the boat the wind ceased and those in the boat worshipped him saying truly you are the son of god if they're worshiping him as a, as a great rabbi, if they're worshiping him as a religious teacher, if they're worshiping him as a political leader, that's blasphemy. And they know that that's punishable by death. They're worshiping him as the son of God. They're clear about who he is. They know and they believe. When Jesus performed these signs, there was always a point. He never did a sign or a miracle that we read in John that doesn't have a point to it. There's always something he wanted people to know, and here the disciples realize that Jesus is the Son of God. The sign is supernatural, but the sign of Jesus that Jesus performs here's also symbolic. The disciples get in the boat and they cast off in obedience to Jesus, not in disobedience like Jonah. Jesus told them to do this they 're not Jonah running from god 's call and getting caught in a storm. This is Jesus saying, "Go down there and cross over." go west across the sea. They're fishermen. They're sons of fishermen. They're grandsons of fishermen. They know, Jesus, if I do this in the middle of the night, if I head west across this lake, it's going to be hard. They don't question. They just, all right, let's go get in the boat. It's no big surprise that they had a strong wind against them. This is what Jesus told them to do. Jesus, he himself, he's sovereign over all creation. He knows what the wind and the waves are going to do. He knows what time the wind's going to pick up. He knows what direction it's going to be out of. He's not taken by surprise by any of this. But Jesus does not interrupt his own needed solitude to be with him. He's not in a hurry. He's going to spend the time he needs to spend on the mountain. This is important to him. So he's not going to go with him and make sure that every little everything's going to be okay. He sends him ahead. He has things he need to he needs to do. We see a little bit more of this when we get to chapter 11. It wasn't the healing of Lazarus. It was the raising of Lazarus because Jesus was never in a hurry. He's never early. He's never late. The disciples are experiencing hardship here. They're stuck. They're rowing, and they're not really gaining. This is happening to them because they're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. They're not straying from Jesus' plan. They're not going their own way. They're not trying to figure things out. They're doing exactly what they were told, and this is the result. But when Jesus comes to them, their hearts are encouraged. Through this sign, they understand more of who Jesus truly is. This is good for the disciples. It's good for them to see Jesus perform this sign. It's good for them to be out there struggling by themselves and then have Jesus come to come to them. It prepares them to stay with Jesus even after many turn away. We're going to talk about in the next few weeks. Later on in this very same chapter, Jesus is teaching some things that are they're not just hard and challenging, they're hard to understand. You have to I mean, you've got to, even now, having the benefit of it written down in front of us, you've got to read it four or five times. What are you talking about, Jesus? Well, you'll see in a few weeks, it's hard. But these hearers, they're hearing Jesus teach, and it's difficult, and a lot of them leave. So Jesus looks at his disciples and said, Are you guys going to go away too? Are you going to leave me as well? Peter, same Peter that said, Let me go out and walk to you. He said, Lord, where are we going to go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we've come to know that you're the Holy One of God. Soon after this, days after this, that's when Peter's ready to make this confession. Seeing the sign, it prepares them to stay with Jesus even after so many turn away. And it's a symbolic reminder. Jesus is on the mountain, but he can still see them. Whether he did that through the moonlight or supernaturally, I don't know. But he can see them, even in the midst of their struggle. He hasn't forgotten them. He didn't turn his back on them. When he co- performs the sign, they have seen both his authority over all creation and his compassion for them. And they know that they can trust him. Finally, let's talk about the significance of Jesus walking on the water. We see it in two different ways. We see it first for the disciples. And we see it second for the church today, including this church here. Let's talk about the significance for the disciples first. Through this sign, Jesus' message for the disciples was, basically, following me, it means hardship and trouble, but I'll come to you. The disciples will soon face the task of building the church after Jesus is raised, and ascends to heaven. But Jesus promises them. Acts chapter 1, he promises them that the Holy Spirit will come to them and will empower them, equip them for the work that is ahead. Despite great trials, their weaknesses were used to display God's power. As we sang just a few minutes ago, I labor on through weakness and rejoicing, for in my need his power is displayed. So they suffer. It's hardship. In this evening, this middle of the night, it's just tough waves. A couple years later, that gets replaced with public beatings, chains, swords. But they rejoiced. They rejoiced that they were uh, even called on to suffer for the name of Jesus. Amidst the hardships, they were glad. And they knew that their weaknesses were used to display the power of God. Now for us, for the church. This sign and all the other signs are written that we might believe. This has been sort of our theme verse throughout John. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Purpose of this sign, the significance of it for us, we have to start with it's written so that we might believe. Just as we read in Matthew's account, when they brought Jesus and Peter along with him back into the boat, they worshiped Jesus as the Son of God. The sign was for them that they might believe. The sign that we're talking about today is for us that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in doing so, we might have life in his name. Doesn't stop there. The significance of this, the disciples struggling greatly, reminds us that this task that Jesus calls us to is beyond our abilities. Um, yeah, if you ever want to be humbled, if, you ever, if you're ever feeling pretty good about yourself, um, just try to do some of the stuff that we all try to do every week. Just try to try to get here and and set everything up and coordinate everything and and, and uh, plan everything that needs to get planned and take care of all the you know and show up early and get up early get up earlier to come to church than you do to go to work and um, and also still love each other. It's hard. This task that Jesus calls to us to is beyond what any of us can do. There's no way any of us can do this. Obedience to Christ is going to mean hardships and it's going to mean trouble. But the Holy Spirit is going to guide us and the Holy Spirit is going to help us. Just like Jesus remained on the mountainside praying while his followers struggled, Jesus is now in heaven interceding on our behalf. He sees us. He sees us in our hardship, and his love and his compassion toward us are tremendous. We have no way to imagine. We have no way to comprehend or understand Uh, his thoughts towards us, his love towards us, his compassion for us, the ways that he intercedes on our behalf before the Father. Our minds cannot comprehend that. Just like he sat on the mountainside and watched them struggle, he's in heaven. He sees us. He's interceding on our behalf. Just like the disciples when we're faced with trials and difficulties, we do what they did. We keep rowing. We wait. We wait for Jesus to come. We wait for the Lord's arrival. We wait for His help and we wait for His comfort. Whether that's setting up every Sunday and breaking down every Sunday for church in the tension that Shows up in our relationships. Struggles with your family. Financial worries. Your kids' grades. Your kids' friends. Your kids' health. Your parents getting older. Our own health. Our sense of identity our sense of belonging our questioning of is this really it this is really what life's going to be all this all these difficulties all these trials just keep rowing we just keep rowing we just keep waiting we trust that jesus will arrive It was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. A lot of us feel that today. It's dark. I can act like it's not dark when I'm here, but when I'm not here in this room with all you guys, it's easy for us to see how dark it is. This might be you today. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. I offer you words of reassurance that he sees you. He will bring order to your chaos. He will bring the oil of gladness in exchange for your oil of mourning. He will bring beauty for your ashes. He will bring joy for your despair. He'll bring peace into your war. He can bring light into your darkness. It was dark. And Jesus hadn't yet come to them. And they struggled. But Sooner or later, Jesus showed up and he said, It's I. Don't be afraid. My encouragement to you, as we struggle, as we row in our church life together, in your family life at home, at your job, at whatever it is that you do, whatever it is that keeps you up at night, whatever it is that you worry about, wherever your dark place is, The Lord sees you. His compassion for you is great. His love for you is real. Do not be afraid. We can be thankful. We can be hopeful that He is the God who sees us. Even in our darkness, He will come to us. He'll get in the boat and we'll rejoice. I want to encourage you with those words. Let's pray. Our Lord, we, we confess uh, that we are weak. And we confess that we are, uh, we often look at the waves and the winds around us and we doubt. We are often like Peter people of little faith. But we know that if we could see what you could see, we would believe, that we would have faith and we would be comforted. So we ask, Lord, today that you would encourage us. We ask today that you would bring order into our chaos, that you would bring your peace into our struggle. And we pray today, starting today, that you would bring light into our darkness. If there are parts of our life that we want to control, we want to hide, and we want to keep for ourselves, help us to invite you into the boat that you might take charge. We pray that this work in us, that today you would give us hope. Today you would give us hope that you see us, you know us, and we have no reason to be afraid. We're thankful for your great mercy and your great compassion and love toward us. We're thankful for the gift of your word that is always true. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit who helps us understand it. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.